If you're like most men in our audience, you're committed to becoming the man, husband, father, and leader God called and created you to be. But the truth of the matter is, you struggle with either finding the time or knowing where to start. That's exactly why I created the Real Men Spiritual Leader Blueprint to give you a step-by-step, easy-to-follow guide to spiritually leading your family, even if you're a new believer. Now, you can't buy the Real Men Spiritual Leader Blueprint, but you can get it for free by signing up for our free e-newsletter. By signing up, you will be notified anytime fresh content is added to my site, so you don't always have to visit my blog to stay up-to-date on the latest information. Now, to get your free copy of the Real Men Spiritual Leader Blueprint, just visit realmenconnect.com and simply enter your name and email address on the form on the page. So if you're tired of trying to figure it all out and fit it all in as the spiritual leader, provider, and protector of your family, don't miss your chance to discover how to be the man God called and created you to be. Sign up today at realmenconnect.com. Welcome to Real Men Connect. Are you ready to be the extraordinary man, husband, father, and leader God called and created you to be? Then get ready to receive wisdom and guidance from some of the country's most respected men of faith as you learn everything you need to know to go from good man to great man God's way. No judgment, no shame. Just real men with real challenges seeking real change. All for God's glory. Hello, mighty men of God, and welcome to the Real Men Connect podcast, where we help good men become great men God's way. I'm your host, Dr. Joe Martin, and every week we interview some of the nation's most respected and accomplished men of faith to find out what it really takes to become the kind of husband, father, and spiritual leader God called and created us to be. Each interview session is packed with practical, proven biblical principles you can immediately apply in your relationships, on your job, and in your community. Man, you know what time it is. It's a time that we're not interviewing a man, but we have brought a female onto the show today, and her name is Sarah Beckman. And Sarah is a professional speaker and the best-selling author of Alongside, a practical guide for loving your neighbor in their time of trial. And she lives in beautiful Albuquerque, New Mexico, which I've had a chance to visit. I'm telling you guys, it is absolutely gorgeous. And she lives there with her husband of 25 years named Craig and their three adult children. And Sarah's passion for loving her neighbor has fueled her life in ministry for more than 10 years, giving her the opportunities to address audiences all across the country. In addition to being a speaker and an author, Sarah is also a communications coach and corporate trainer. Her experience on both sides of trials and tribulations, both being helped and helping others, have provided her with a unique perspective to help people. Now, and I had a chance to read Sarah's incredible book, and her subtitle says, It's a practical guide for loving your neighbor. But I think that's an understatement, man. You got to listen to me. It's more than just a practical guide. I think it's more of an owner's manual for loving our neighbor during times of trial because it's so specific and detailed. And after I read the first couple of chapters, I said, wow, because even though it's for everyone and anyone who wants to be there uh, for their neighbor in times of need and or for their family or friends, this is exactly the kind of book I think men need on their desk and on their bookshelves. And I can't wait to talk to Sarah about it. So with that being said, I want to welcome one of the few female guests on our show, Sarah Beckman, to the Real Men Connect podcast. Thanks for joining us, Sarah. Thank you. I'm so happy to be here. You know, and Sarah, you know, it's funny because we don't have a lot of women on our show, but the feedback I get from the men, they seem to be the shows that they listen to the most. I'm thinking maybe we need to change the format and have more females on the show. Well, then they would take for granted, right? That's right. You know, I think maybe that's what it is, is that since we rarely have women on the show, when we do have them, they know it's got to be an important reason why we're doing it. And there definitely is. And Sarah, before we get started, because I got a lot of stuff I want to cover with you, especially about your your wonderful book. But um, we always ask our guests to share their favorite Bible verse, something that gives them inspiration from the Word of God. What is one of your anchor or go-to verses for you? Oh, gosh. My kids always joke with me that I always say, that's my favorite verse. <laughs> <laughs> but I really, I do actually, I'll pick one. And the reason I chose it is because I'm the youngest of 14 kids. Holy cow, 14? Yes. Good gracious. Right. <laughs> one dad, what the whole deal. And so 14 has always been a special number to me because I'm the 14th child. And the verse that really has spoke to me and prompted me and really brought me back to 
ground zero in many times of crisis is Exodus 14.14, and that is, the Lord will fight for you. You only need be still. Now, why that particular verse? I've never heard anybody quote that particular verse before. Why that one? Uh, well, so part of my story, and it, it kind of leads us into the book a little bit and why I wrote it, but um, what really I've faced a lot of trial in my life um, when I was young and then when I was a, an adult mom with kids. And one of the things I struggled with was four back surgeries. And so be still and know I'm God is Psalm 4610. And that's one of those, you know, also a verse that spoke to me in that time. But this verse for me, because I'm a doer, and I always want to fix things, and I always want to have my agenda versus God's agenda, and I kind of get ahead of him sometimes, that this reminds me of both, that there's a time to be still and, and let God be in charge, and that he's got it. He's going to fight for you. And so it helps me just, it's on my wall right now. My sister, my daughter painted me this beautiful picture with the verse and calligraphy and it's in my office on my wall. And I just, just reminds me that we need to go God's way and he's fighting behind the scenes and he's out in front and coming behind and all of the places. And my job is to just sit back and let him do the fighting. I don't have to do it for him. Wow, what a great anchor verse, Sarah. I love that, man. That is great. You know, and it is a great transition to um, how we're going to talk about the book today. First of all, I want to thank you for writing this book. Uh, when I first received it um, from your publicist, um, I really needed it at the time. It wasn't anything serious, but I wanted to know how do I comfort someone. And especially when you're dealing with men, we tend to only have one approach to um, <laughs> addressing people who are in need. And typically, we don't we don't always do it the right way. And so your book, it was perfect time for me to receive your book. And as I read through the first couple of chapters, I started sharing some of those tips with my wife. And I mentioned this before we came on the air. And she was in total agreement with you, which intrigued other one to read the book herself. So if you could um, start by sharing, um, you mentioned a little bit about, the, you said the back surgeries, but share with us a little bit about your story and why you felt you needed to write this particular book. Yes. So basically, uh, long story short, I call it the decade of hardship. Okay. <laughs> and there's been plenty before and plenty after, but sort of the crux of this book became almost a necessity. I really felt like there was no choice but to write it. So when I was pregnant with my third child, I was on bed rest for 11 weeks. And then following that, I had three back surgeries in three years before she was even four years old. And then I had another back surgery, spinal fusion, which was the most major of the four. And in between there, I also had a couple other minor surgeries. And at the same time, I was walking through leukemia with a best friend from church who was in a small group with me. And so simultaneous to those back surgeries, she was struggling with leukemia and her journey was five years. And I was centrally just located in the trauma, if you will, as a, a very key role in, in her family and coordination and lots of hats that I wore inside that trial. So I, as you know, you said, I'm on, I've been on both sides of the bed. And then my neighbor got cancer. And then my brother-in-law got cancer. And between the best friend, the neighbor and the brother-in-law, they all died within three years. So wow. one year, two years, three years. And so each time I learned more than I knew before. And then the, this other phenomenon happened where people kept calling me, asking me what to do in their own situations with their friends or their loved ones getting cancer or being terminal or having back issues or any health trials. And so all of a sudden I was giving all this advice and it was, I was a quote unquote expert on something that I never dreamed or wanted. Thank you very much. Yeah, right, right. Good and gracious. Right. And and then the book became just sort of a thing when uh, I was having a simple conversation with my sister about how some people really seem to know what to do and others do not. And I thought, wow, what if we could teach people to be better? Because I've learned so much and there's so many people that, that are doing it right, you know, that are doing good things. And so that was sort of the initial idea. And then from there, 
I, I really, honestly, Joe, I struggled because I, at first I wanted to do it all on my own knowledge. <laughs> Sound familiar? Like just how often do we think, I know it, I got the answer. I know what to do here. And in the very next moment, I had this thought in my mind, which Holy Spirit, I believe, God just said, yes, you have a lot of knowledge, but there's other people who know a lot too. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Wow. Now, I want to ask you this, though, Sarah, from the time that you went through this decade of hardship, how long was it? Because it doesn't necessarily mean you're going to write a book immediately after. Did it happen right after that? You decided to, that God put this in your spirit to write this book, or did it take years removed away from that experience? Well, um, it was sort of towards the end of the decade, actually, yes, because um, after my brother-in-law died, he was sort of the third and final in that whole, you know, drama that I just shared. Right, right. <laughs> but, and then my family moved to New Mexico. So we lived in the Midwest previous, and then we moved to New Mexico. And that was when I was freed up from all sorts of obligations and volunteering and serving at my church and all of the things. I had this clean slate. And no friends and no ministry connections and no nothing really 1500 miles away from everything familiar. And that was when God put it on my heart to write the book. And then it was about four and a half years. So it's been out about a year and a half. And I started it around the time I moved here, which is six years ago. So it was after all of that with a lot of hindsight. And, and then the reason it took so long is because I did interview people. So I emailed and called and connected with people that had been through their own hard things. And I asked them what was helpful to you in your trial and what was not. And it wasn't exclusive to terminal illness or back surgeries. It was every trial from diabetes to, you know, death and grief and um, anxiety and depression and abuse and mental illness. I mean, you name it. And, and so many the reason I think you resonate with it, Joe, is because so many people said the very same thing when I interviewed them. And that became my guideline, like a research paper. Then those have to be the chapters because so many people agreed that that must be universal truth. Well, and I tell you, Sarah, you know, this book, you know, as a host and we interview a lot of people, there's been a lot of great authors on our show, a lot of great speakers who have phenomenal books. And this book is, I, I'm trying to see how can I put this? <laughs> well, because I, I mentioned earlier that um, you call it a practical guide, but I call it an owner's manual. And I'm hoping that's not a slight to you by me <laughs> saying I that. It. I wrote it down when you said it. Can yeah, you believe but, it? I believe it. Well, good. Because cause I didn't want it to be like an insult to you. But to me, that's why I look at it as an owner's manual because of the way, not only is the way the book reads, but how you have the book organized. And you organize it in three simple parts. The uh, first part is first things first, what you first <laughs> have to understand and must do. Two is taking action. And the third part is what to do in special circumstances. And I love it. And this is not a slight to women when I say this. And it's not like we got a lot of women listening to the show, but it's not a slight to women when I say this. But most women authors don't organize their books the way you did this one. <laughs> they, 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 and, I, and I'm not saying that as a slight to them. Cause, but because no, I'm not even saying it as a negative. They usually tell a story and then they weave the lessons inside the story. So why did you choose to? I know it sounds like a weird question, but why did you choose to organize your book this way? I love it. But what made you do it that way? Yeah, excellent question because it was so intentional. So I'm grateful. Oh, that good. You know. So it wasn't my it was my accident. Yeah. Okay. I, I I interviewed with one one gal, a friend of mine, and she she and I were talking, and she said to me, "I really just wish that I could open a book and like put my finger down and know what to do." And I wanted it accessible. I, I say right in there, I want you to get your highlighter and your pen and mark it up and use it and and make it real. And that's why there's checklists and stories and comments and all the things. But I really, my dream, and, and I put a lot of pressure on myself and I really at times wanted to quit because it was harder to organize it that way, <laughs> yeah. right? It's easier to write free thought and free flowing and weave in wisdom. And, but I wanted you to be able to literally open your book to any page and put your finger down much like the Bible. Not that I'm comparing my writing yeah. to the Bible, but <laughs> just open it and put your finger down and go, Oh, that applies to me. I could do that today. So that's what I wanted. I wanted you to be able to love your neighbor in that way that you could seriously put your finger down and say, oh, I could do that today. 
you know, and men listen to me. It's exactly like that. That's what I mean. It's exactly like that. You know, and you said it first, Sarah. I didn't. So God is not going to be mad at me when I say this. I was thinking, I said, I'm not going to say this on the air to Sarah when she's on the show. But you mentioned the Bible. Right. And this and this is the honest truth. God, you, you know, I love you. <laughs> I said, if the Bible was written this way, more people would read it. That's what I, that's what I said. Well, I, I will receive that compliment. I'm, I'm sure there's no offense. We both love the Lord. God and, knows my heart. I, I'm right? just because I love I love God's word. And I'm thinking, you know, it's because I, I teach men how to read the Bible. I teach men how to um, to study it. And I'm thinking, wow, it'll be so much easier if I could show them not this way, that they can go exactly right. where to go. Yeah. So, so, but you said it, so I know I wasn't crazy when I thought that. So God, well, that, that was a divine. And it is intentionally <laughs> written that way. I wanted it to be really practical so people could do it because really, ultimately, I didn't want to write a book. Uh, certainly, we don't write books to make a fortune and or become famous, so to speak. Uh, but I wanted a book that would help people be better at loving people in the worst situations because I watched how hard and how emotionally fraught with you know all of the terrible things and when people do the wrong thing how much it hurts and I just thought if we could relieve that pressure if we could make what's terrible just a tiny bit better not only is you know that would be a great outcome but also I really felt like when I read that verse love your neighbor as yourself I don't I didn't know how to do that. So I really was out to set out to say what how does that look practically with skin on it? Can we put meat on those bones and say what what could we do actually to love our neighbor instead of just this ethereal notion that's written in the Bible in a gospel and people gloss over it because they don't know how. Well, I can tell you, Sarah, mission accomplished. <laughs> mission accomplished with this book. And I know the guy's going to kill me if I don't jump into now getting to some specifics. All right, Sarah, I, I knew when I had you on the show that it was um, going to almost be impossible for us to talk about everything that we wanted to ask you about in the book. So I decided to start um, at the end of chapter one, uh, where you give readers a bird's eye view of the book by giving them guidelines to show them um, what to follow and as well as some of the questions that we should be asking when it comes to loving our neighbors as we do ourselves. So for this interview, I don't want to focus on all of the guidelines and questions because there are like 16 guidelines that you outlined as well as 12 questions. So instead, we're only going to focus on some of them. And as we do, just like you do in part two of your book, I want you to give us some specifics on what that looks like in practical terms. So let's start with the guidelines. Um, one of the main themes throughout your book is when it comes to loving others in their time of trial is to remember that it's not about you. It's not about us personally. That seems somewhat self-explanatory, but you really drive that point home. Could you explain why this is so important for us to understand? Yes, that it is my favorite thing. And as a as a joke in our family, because I made every one of my kids read the book. Oh, did you? <laughs> uh, yeah. uh, my youngest, who doesn't love to read, is not quite done, but she's in the special circumstances. But everyone's read the book, and they do. They have used it. They've had to use it because they're no, not one of us can be spared these moments, right, of trial in people's lives that we care about. So we have a little joke that we just say chapter two. <laughs> when someone <laughs> is being all about themselves and not about others or if they're just like get over yourself is sort of our little secret joke. Chapter two, we just say to each other. But uh, I think that the, the the place that this notion of it coming, it's being down to us, where we think more about ourselves than the person that we want to come alongside. The the problem is that we do have great intentions. We really want to care for people, um, but when we don't put ourselves in their shoes, or when we don't think about them first as the top priority, then we can easily be offended. For example, if you reach out to a guy friend. And you might send him a text when he's going through something or someone he cares about died or, you know, maybe he's going through divorce or maybe he's out of a job. I mean, all those things are, are occasions where you might want to reach out and, and show you care. And sometimes we'll send a text and the person might not respond to us right away. And then we might take offense to that. Now, you know, we could do the generalization where women might be more offended if a girl didn't get back to their text than a guy. But 
then it might cause us either way, whether we're male or female, to not reach out again because we may think, well, they don't want to talk to me or they didn't respond. But really, you just have to put yourself in their shoes. They're busy. They're overwhelmed. Things are crazy for them. And so you just need to know that it's not about you. It's about them. So the best thing to do then would be to reach out again and just say, hey, not sure you got my text or you don't even have to say that. You could just say the same exact thing again a week later because they really do want to hear from you. Another thing you can do is invite them to do something, right? But then what if they don't respond or they can't go? Well, that doesn't mean stop inviting them. It just means now is probably not a good time. So really, about it's not about you. The number one thing, I believe, is not to be offended and to give a lot of grace to people in that situation. And if you've ever been in a trial, just try and remember what it felt like in those moments, how difficult it is to actually respond to everyone's emails or texts or phone calls or offers of help or all the different things. Don't take it personally. It's not about you. It's about them right now. You know, and I got to tell you, Sarah, even if they never read the rest of the book, that one thing hit me. And even though it sounds so simple, but the, but the key part is what you just mentioned by not taking offense. You know, I had read your book and don't you know, I was dealing with a, a good friend of mine who was going through a trial. And I mean, and I'm saying it's a real trial. And right. And he, I mean, he's been devastated. And so God put on my heart to reach out to him. And it's funny, you just mentioned this via text. <laughs> and I sent him a text. Just check on, let him know I was praying for him. How can I pray for him? And that kind of thing. And he never responded to me, never responded to me. And I immediately thought about your book about Joe, don't take offense. I mean, now I get it. I get it. Don't take offense. They're going through the thing. And it wasn't the act that he did. It wasn't the fact that he didn't respond. It's the fact that I made the effort to reach out and he knows that I I reached out to him and he responded about, and I'm not kidding you, Sarah, I'm talking about like 13 or 14 days, like two weeks later, and he finally responded um, to the point I forgot I even texted him. But he was so apologetic. And so, and I told him it was okay, you know, but I'm thinking prior to your book, I probably would not have received it that way. And so um, that in itself is, is worth men noting that when you say it's not about you, it's not for us to take offense and not to be offended by them because we have to extend, like you said, give them a lot of grace. And how many people do you know can receive too much grace? <laughs> so that's yeah. not going to happen. I don't think so. Not in the middle of a terrible thing. <laughs> All right. Now, Sarah, on another guideline you mentioned in the book, and this was eye-opening for me, and I never considered it when it comes to being there for someone, and you call it knowing your place. Yeah. And I, I love how you break it down in the book. Could you explain to us what you mean by knowing your place when it comes to loving your neighbor? Yes. Well, I I really just felt the need because there are certain situations where there's a certain response that's appropriate depending on how close you are to someone. And so I decided that for the sake of the book, we would use a, a system that I call the relationship tiers, not as in crying, but as in levels. <laughs> right. <laughs> um. The tiers are tier one is a close family friend or caregiver, and then tier two is more like a coworker, friend, neighbor, you know, shared interest. But you probably maybe are seeing them outside of the shared interest a little bit. And then tier three might be all those same people, but you're not really hanging out on the weekends. It might be a coworker that you you know you don't really interact with much, but you know them. It's just that you're not like in that inner ring, knowing them. And then tier four is the furthest distance relationship. You might not even know them, but they might be someone, you know, like their daughter or, you know, whatever. So um, that has been really helpful to just sort of delineate. And, and really then throughout the book, we've, we've sort of laid out, this is appropriate if you are a tier one or two, because you're a close friend, you're in that inner circle. So like, if you don't know someone super well, I kind of think people overuse texting, right? Because if you got someone's phone number and started texting them and you're a tier three, you know, they're, they're probably pretty busy with their tier one and twos on the text right about then, right? So it's going to get lost in the shuffle and it might feel a little intrusive even. Um, So there's just the proper, like better, not proper, but just there's just better ways to show that you care and express your concern 
if you are that further distance relationship. And that's kind of woven throughout the book. But honestly, what what happens is that people have found that it's given them so much more freedom because we aren't called to help every single tier two, three, four, right? Because we'll have a one or a two in our life at some point. And so A, we don't have to help everyone, which is a more overwhelming thing for women. And, and so then I would jump right to your audience, to you guys that are listening. And I would say, hey, but guess what? When you have a one or a two in your life, you are supposed to do something. <laughs> and you can't just blow it off because I've watched friendships be ruined over people not showing up for someone in their trial, you know, or someone saying the wrong thing and then not apologizing or not, you know, because then like, well, why did they get mad? It was just a mistake or, you know, well, cause you're not giving grace and they're the one in the trial and you have to be the bigger person in this scenario. So friendships are lost, but I love that it gives you a, the freedom to know what's yours to do and what's not yours to do. Right. Sarah, this is so good. I mean, and something I caught there's a subtle thing that you, you mentioned. You, when you mentioned those levels, we would think that if we're um, less personal to the person, that issue require a less personal contact. But you just kind of flipped the script a little bit by saying that, hey, because you're farther out, you may it might be better for you to call because they're always getting those constant communication via text or whatever through the people who are closest to them. And I never would have thought about that, but that makes kind of common sense when you think about it, because the people like my wife texts me more than anybody else. <laughs> you know? And so you're right that I'm not going to be less responsive to text because I'm going to re- read her text message and all my closer friends. Now, I will share this as a bonus for you, though, Sarah. When I read that part of the book, first of all, I was like, wow, I never thought about that, that you need to look at where your place is. We had a guest on the show. His name is um, Dr. Joseph Walker. And he wrote a book called Now, No Opportunity Wasted. And he talked about relationships. And this is how I'm helping. I'm using your book now to help me remember this when I'm helping um, love my neighbor. He says that you need to define the relationship. He says, are they in the house person? Ah. Are they on the porch person? Are they in the yard or are they outside the fence? <laughs> right? And he, he mentioned that because as boys growing up, I knew I grew up in the projects in Miami. There were certain friends that would come over. My mom said, don't let that boy in our yard, <laughs> you know, <laughs> keep him outside the fence or yeah, he can come in the yard, but he can't come on the porch or they can be on the porch, but don't let that boy in my house. And then there were those friends that we would let in the house. And those were the people who were closest to us. So I'm going to remember that I'm applying that to your book that I needed to find where are they in the house, on the porch, in the yard or outside the fence? Where am I with that person? So I I, love that. And it's so wise, so wise. And really it's just, you know, there, there are some things that are just more appropriate. And you know, like if you're on a texting relationship level with someone and they are three, that's fine, but they might not get back to you. You know, leave a voicemail, send a note in the mail, you know, let them receive it on their own time and reserve sort of the intimacy of more personal ways of reaching out. Like, you know, an example that I will give you is that, you know, we had some friends that lost a son to suicide and we were out of state, so we couldn't go to their house. But later we heard a story about someone who showed up at their door and who could not keep their emotions in check. And they weren't necessarily a one or a high level two, they were more like a two, three and they showed up and they were kind of overwrought with emotion. And it was so not helpful to my friends. And then we live far away and, and we're definitely like, we're a two, I would say only because we don't get to live by them. We're not next door neighbors. We're not seeing them constantly. We're not like a one. Um, but then when my husband called this friend, after the event happened and as they're reeling and waiting, planning the funeral and all the things. And he said to him, my husband's friend in this scenario of suicide, he said, the people that show up or call are the bravest. And my husband won't ever forget that because he didn't know what to say, but he called. And my friend was so happy. And this was guy to guy. And he really called him out like, this is amazing. I can't believe you called me because the personal voice really mattered 
right? As opposed to just this impersonal text, hey, I'm thinking about you, I'm really sorry. You know, he was willing to enter in. You know, and I remember reading that in your book and that jumped out at me as well because I remember highlighting it that, wow, I never thought about that. Um, the bravest person is going to call and show up. And I think about the times I've showed up and I've called a person. Yeah, it was very, very scary because, again, I hadn't read your book yet, <laughs> so I didn't know what to do, but I knew I needed to do something. And so, but yeah, you were right. I, I showed up. Um, I, one of my friends, he lost his wife. And um, I didn't know what to do. I even asked my wife, I don't know what did I say? I'm just going to be there for him. And I went to just sat with him and I was there and I didn't realize that, um, it, you know, I had to get old. Like you said, it's not about me, but he constantly reminds me that that meant everything to him. Just me showing that they're sitting with him. I didn't do anything other than show up, you know, and be there for him and just listen to him. And it so, is an action. Yeah. Showing up is an action. Yeah. yeah. You know, and that kind of transitions into the next um, thing I want to mention that you mentioned in your guidelines is about offering specific helps. Why is that so important in loving our neighbor during times of trial that you, you say specific helps? Yes. Oh, and it's so great because this is really a classic uh, one that gentlemen specifically. Yeah, I was going to say men ask. <laughs> but no, everyone oh, across okay. the board. So here's the thing. We often say, let me know what I can do. And the person in trial is so unlikely to ever actually let you know what you can do. If you're a one and you're saying it, that it's a little different because like your mom or sister, or brother, or, you know, best friend guy. So if you say, let me know, then you're going to be around in proximity and maybe they will say, Hey, I need you to go get the car from the shop for me or something like that. But in general, people are are not going to let you know what you can do in quotations. So we can combat that and we can, we have to do the work. That's really the thing. It's very easy to just spit out the words. Let me know what I can do in the back of church or at the grocery store or at the coffee shop or at the restaurant or in the office. We can just say, Hey gosh, sorry about what happened. Let me know what I can do. And for some people, they really hope they will never let them know (laughs) what they can do. Right. Because they didn't really mean it. But and and the people that are receiving that offer, so to speak, know it. They know you don't really mean it because there's so when we do the work of thinking through what could we actually do and we offer that offer something specific that you can actually do. Number one, they are so much more likely to receive it. And number two, you are more likely to do it because you won't offer something that you a don't have the resources or the capability of doing or that you're not available to do b so everyone wins when we make our offer specific to the situation i would love to pick your kid up and drive him to football i'm going already why don't you let me do that for the whole season you know Um, I'm going to the game. Do you need a ride? I can pick you up if you can't drive. Uh, You know, there's just so many ways that we can make a specific offer. You know, don't worry about the snow. I'll come and take care of your driveway for the next week or the month. Or can I come and take care of, you know, your car? Or do you have household needs that need to be taken care of? Like, I mean, and guys can be offering to women that are widows as well. And instead of, you know, It might be your best friend and his wife is still with us. And then what do you do? Well, you could say, hey, I'm real handy around the house. And so why don't you keep a list? And then I'll try to come over once a month to handle the to-do list. Because I'm sure there'll be lots of things and you don't need to worry about how to learn or how to find someone to do those things for Mm -hmm. you. Mm -hmm. And I got to tell you, Sarah, when I was reading that, when the way you have it outlined in your book, too, you give specific things we can do. And as guys, we like to do specific things. But I got to also believe too, that if you're offering, like you said, from the standpoint of thinking through what can I actually do for this person and then offering that, I got to believe that most people don't do that for the person who's going through something. They, they kind of give the same cliche, trite um, promises. Yeah. You know, let me know if I can do anything for you. But when you do those specific things, that's got to let you stand out among the people who've been approaching them. And I like the fact that you've even gone back to look at, because if you offer something, because you can do it, and more than likely you don't mind doing it anyway. 
And so I think that's that's great, great advice. I love it. I love it. And you have so many different things based on what that person could, what you can do for that person that no one can ever say again. I don't know what to offer this person. Yes. Oh, there's I mean, my no goodness. Excuse. There's, there's no excuse. Yeah. There, there's, you, it's so it's great. I love it. Now, and one of the guidelines you want us um, to watch what we say. <laughs> All right. And you mentioned a couple of those already. But as I read in chapter 12, uh, I got to admit to you, Sarah, I cringed. I cringed because I checked off. Now, I hate to say it. Seven of the 20 things you said not to say, because <laughs> oh, I've said those things to people. And I'm like, oh, my goodness. But now I can plead ignorance. I didn't know any better. You didn't know. Move forward from here. <laughs> right. You know, when like, you don't know. But when you have the truth. The truth will set you free, right? That's, that's right. You know, so I think this is a perfect segue into knowing the right questions to ask. But before we address the right questions, could you share just some of those things that we shouldn't say to people who are going through a trial and what we should say instead? Yes. So choosing wise words is so important. And that's really the number one thing that people wonder. What do I do and what do I say? Because when we meet them, you know, for example, in a funeral line, we don't know. We don't know what to say. So we say they're in a better place. Yeah. Well, even if that's true, <laughs> yeah. it's not helpful. Right. Because what they want is their loved one in this place, in this time right now. And it feels very insensitive. Uh, I have a dear friend who is a chiropractor of mine. And um, he, a chiropractor of mine. I don't have many. I have one. <laughs> <laughs> and... He had a friend who lost his son and they sat over a dinner conversation and he said a comment like that. Well, at least he's in a better place. And his friend got so mad at him. I mean, he pounded the table. He just was like, I can't believe you're saying that to me. That's just, you know, it's terrible. And he, of course, my friend felt terrible because you don't want to say something that hurts someone when you're just trying to, but we call it a platitude. It's a platitude. It's an easy thing to say. It could be true, but it might not be helpful to that person in that time. So instead, what do we say instead when we're in the funeral line or when we're sitting across the table from our friend? You know, number one, you just affirm, I'm sorry, this is terrible. It's It stinks. You know, it sucks. This is a bad deal, dude. I mean, whatever you need to say in your language, in your vernacular, to express that you're with them and that it stinks. Um, I, I just, there's no real better way. And most of the time, that's what people want. They want you to acknowledge the pain that they're in. Um, so funeral line, one of the ways that we can get through that or when someone just dies or, you know, if we want to send a card or if we need to call or we need to text, here is the number one piece of advice I give, which is they would like a remembrance better than a condolence. A condolence is a simple, I'm sorry for your loss. I'm praying for you. You know, they will be missed, whatever. But a remembrance, if you know them well enough, so this obviously can't necessarily be a four-tier relationship thing unless, you know, you find information about them. But you would want to talk about the things you loved or admired or respected or, you know, remember about that person because the person that's grieving wants to remember their loved one. So back to the friend sitting at the table in the restaurant, he could have said, dude, I don't have words right now. This must really suck. I'm so sorry. I'm here for you. If you want to talk, I will listen. If you don't want to talk, we don't have to talk about it. If you want to talk about sports, we can talk about sports. If you don't want to see me, you don't have to see me. If you want to just go out once a week, we can do that. But you're really just giving them permission to do what they need to do and know that you're there for them, whatever it is they need. And guys can talk a little more frankly, I think, like that way I just spoke. Women struggle. I'm sort of a straight shooter. So I'm pretty, I don't play games. So I'm always like, you know, I'll be there. I'll show up. I'll be with you every day if you need, or I'll back off. I don't need you to need me. Right, right. You know, and I think, Sarah, what it is that we struggle with is men, given what you share, because this is so enlightening, is that we're kind of, I guess, wired to want to be problem solvers. 
Yes. And we want to fix something that maybe right now we're not supposed to fix, that we're supposed to just be there. Um, I, I think about the scripture. Um, I can't remember the exact verse, but it says that you weep with those who weep and rejoice with those who rejoice. And I remember I was um, with a friend who was going through some difficult times and I just cried with him. You know, as he wept and I, you know, and but at the same time, I rejoice as we remember, like you said, those remembrance and laugh with them at the same time. But I felt that I like that. I said, well, I was supposed to be fixing. No, I wasn't supposed to fix anything. But I, this is a close tear friend, what you're saying. And I know him very well. And so but I just was there and I'm kind of just met him where he was as opposed to where I wanted him to be. And that's what it seems like you're saying that that meet them where they are. And at that particular time, you, they may not want to hear some of the words we think is going to comfort them when it can really, in a sense, wound them like this person. Like you said, the friend that you did had at the restaurant. And as, as I was going reading your, your book, I was cringing. I'm thinking, oh, God, I'm so sorry. I didn't know that you said that. And but I, but I'm learning. And most people. They can move forward. But, you know, when you think about like, we're not just the only person, right? Everyone's doing that. So then we can stand out by doing by loving well. And, you know, we so we want to avoid medical advice. And we want to avoid trying to fix it. We want to listen, we want to avoid comparing their situation to ours. Um, and we want to avoid just like true, but helpful, like, or true, but not helpful statements. So those truths that they may be true, they might be in heaven. Yes. Their suffering might be over. Yes. You know, maybe they weren't a good wife to you, but saying, you know, you're better off without her is not something they probably want to hear. Yeah. Even even if they are. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Right. So it's just, you want to really watch out for true, but helpfuls. Um, and, and avoid the Christian platitudes. That, I think, is probably the hardest. And if you see someone post on Facebook or social media or anything and you see, uh, you know, I lost such and such and a picture, and then you look through the comments, the comments are often filled with, I'm sorry for your loss, I'm praying for you. But then I always scroll through, and I love the ones where there's a paragraph and someone has written beautiful words about the person or the relationship or how much they meant to you. You know, if it's a friend and you didn't know their dad, you could just say, gosh, I know how much you loved your dad. You don't have to know dad to say, I know how much you loved him and this must really hurt. That means something to someone. Sarah, this is so good, man. I mean, it's so helpful and so, so, so practical. That's why I'm telling you, they they have to get this book up because like you said, nobody's immune from this. We're going to deal with people all the time. And I mean, it might even be on a monthly basis that somebody, you know, especially if you have a large circle of influence of somebody's going to go through something. And this is such a, a practical way to, to help them. Now, um, I want to go into something else. Joe, just to stop you for sure. one second, right I, just, ahead, I do think that people... They don't have a compassion problem. They are compassionate, but they have a confidence problem. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. That, that's that's well said, too. That's exactly what it is. Because we do want to help. We do want to be there for them. We just don't know how. Now, you mentioned something, Sarah, that, um, and, and I can't wait to hear your response to this, is when we're trying to help and support someone doing a trial, um, you say we should be asking ourselves, where is th- this person in their faith journey? Why is it important for us to know that? Well, I think that there is such an opportunity when people are struggling and in need and in pain to reach out and shine the light, right, of Christ. But we also can't lose that opportunity by not being sensitive to where they are so that we can tread lightly and shine instead of, you know, assault them with um, you know, overly Christian, like vernacular that yeah, they don't understand. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So that, yeah. So that they would then say, Oh, crazy Jesus freak. I don't want them around me when I'm in my trial. Right. Cause I mean, I, I, and, and there might be a time for truth and gospel. And so I'm not saying we shy away from that, but I'm saying we prayerfully consider that relationship and where we're at and how well we know them and what tier they are and then where they're at in their faith. And we need to have a relationship, I believe, completely, absolutely, 100% in relational evangelism. So when we know our place in their life, we know when we can push on certain things, right? But 
in general, like they might not be in our denomination or they might not be, um, you know, maybe as like far along, you know, or as activated in their faith. But that doesn't, we can't assume they have no faith either. And so we just need to be mindful and prayerful and not barge in and act like, well, they need to be saved because they're in this trial and they're going to go to hell and we need to just love them like Jesus did. And we can love them with scripture. We can love them by praying. We can love by sharing all those things, but we need to build that relationship and know where they're coming from. So we don't lose the opportunity. Just like first Peter three fifteen, always be prepared to share the reason for the hope that you have, but do so with gentleness and respect. Mm-hmm. Man, this is so good, Sarah. You know, and I, I tell you, I told you before we got on the show that I was going to be concerned because I know we're going to be running out of time and we're getting close. I, like, I'm not even asking you the man up questions, the woman version of it, <laughs> but because there's still a few questions I want to get to. And I don't yeah. even know we're going to have time. So I'm kind of like trying to say, OK, which one is more important? But I think this this question is important because you kind of alluded to it earlier. And you mentioned about with the man in the text thing. It's about sending the text. And okay. one of the most interesting questions um, you said we need to ask ourselves, to me, this was interesting, is that, is this person um, who's going through this trial a man or a woman? So right. explain to us why that makes a difference. Why is that so important? Yes. Well, so I noticed we when we walked through leukemia with my best friend, um, I also walked alongside her husband a lot. And my husband walked alongside her husband a lot. And so it wasn't just me helping her and Craig, my husband, helping him. It was sort of both and, right? Like Craig didn't really do a lot practically for the gal, but, you know, the guy needed a lot of practical things. So we interacted. Well, I would talk about, you know, deeper stuff. And my husband would go to dinner and they wouldn't talk at all the whole time about her or the hospital or any of the treatment or how she was doing or anything. They talked business, politics, sports, my husband's job, his job. And he'd get home and I would drill him. Like, what did you talk about? How did you know? Like, is it okay? How's he doing? And he's like, we didn't talk about that. He doesn't need me to talk about it. He wants to be normal. He wants to go get a beer and have some dinner and talk about stuff we used to talk about before his wife had cancer. And so it is sort of sometimes a girl guy thing, but, um, so that's why I do think you need to know. And then there's also just sort of relational boundaries. True. You know, like you're not going to send a super intimate text to a gal, send it to her husband. Right. So, um, you do need to know, but like, that doesn't mean if you have a coworker, that's a gal that you shouldn't do something. So you do kind of discern what's appropriate based on that male, female, relationship and and uh so like if it's a gal at work then definitely you could just leave a card hey thinking about you this must be really hard you know my wife would like to bring dinner or we want to bring dinner i can drop it at the office i mean you can still do a lot of things that are appropriate um, but you're not going to be texting and you know in that sort of more inner ring in that male female it just depends but so it just really, you just want to be mindful of the gender issue. And, and basically what you're saying is that one size doesn't fit all. We have to adapt to the gender and, and know the person. But you can't say I want to do this with everybody the exact same way. <laughs> yeah. And guys really do respond to different things than women. You know, so guys aren't as touchy feely. They don't want a basket full of warm socks and pajamas. You know, they want like the favorite series that you have watched on Netflix or the DVDs of, you know, Breaking Bad or, you know, whatever. I mean, so that's why it does matter if it's a guy or a girl. You know, and Sarah, we got time maybe for two questions. And I'm going to save the last question because it's a question that really wasn't addressed in your book. Um, but I know you can speak towards it um, because this it was a new phenomenon that came to me when I was um, dealing with a friend and I asked another friend for advice. And my wife was, um, she seconded the, the same thought, but we'll get to that question in a second. Okay. But I want to get this question in, though. Um, in your book, in part, I guess it's part three about the special circumstances, you mentioned there were like five of them that you covered. And I wanted to address one in particular about how we should handle it when we've been there ourselves. 
And because I didn't because I didn't think that should have been even addressed. But then I read like, oh, man, my goodness, this is good. And so can you share with us um, that why we need some instruction with that? What how should we respond to people who are going through a trial when we've been there ourselves? Yeah. So the biggest question is so in one part of the book, I say we they don't want you to compare your situation to theirs because it's not theirs. So then when I say that, I feel like but there is a time when it is useful for building each other up, right? As the word says, or to comfort those when we've been comforted, when we've received the same comfort. So there is a very strong notion of testimony of I've been there, you know, and and that's how we learn. So I didn't, I really felt like we had to address that there is a time and a place. You lost your mom, he lost his mom. You know, there's some practical things that they might not know are coming. Maybe it's wills or maybe it's funeral plans or maybe it's relatives or, you know, those kinds of things that when you've been there, you can speak to it. So there's some guidelines. Number one, I think the most important one is you ask permission. You say, you know, if you want to know some things I learned along the way, I'm happy to share. So, you know, when you're ready or I'll check back with you and, and see if you want to know. Or someone's in a real pinch and it's they have 48 hours and they're about to go to surgery. And, and you know that you had a really rough experience with such and such a doctor or um, you had great experience with this particular treatment then you could just say, you know, I had a lot of success with this. If you're interested, I'll tell you more about it. You know, because then it's just you're more approachable and they don't feel like everyone's telling them what to do, which they already feel like already. Um, when I had my back surgeries, I just had so many people trying to give me advice. I can't even tell you how many people. <laughs> Hand on your head and get an machine. Did you do acupuncture? And did you try this? I'm like, I have a degenerative disc disease. It is not going away without surgery. Leave me alone. But wow, I wanted to talk to people who had surgery, Right. Because I wanted to know, what did you go through? How was the recovery? Tell me about it. My brother just was just be, be, just bemoaning having to have back surgery, the same one I had. And all sorts of people were giving him a hundred other ideas besides surgery. And I called and I said, hey, do you want to talk about this? I can tell you my experience. And he said, yes, I want to know. And in the end, he had the surgery and he's so grateful. And he said, Sarah, I can't tell you how helpful it was because you knew exactly what I was going through. And you like gave me permission to do what I needed to do. Yeah. And see, Sarah, I think that's the key with the, with the aha. Just ask permission. Yeah. So they'll if they need it, and they want it. They will say, OK, yeah, sure. And so I think so practical, but yet, you know, what do they call it? Common sense, but not common knowledge. <laughs> it's just right. ask for permission. You know, and I, I mentioned, here's my last question for you. And I mentioned it. I say it's not addressing the book, but yes, you do address, it, but not specifically. And my wife had brought up uh, something to me when um, one of my friends, um, he had lost his wife and and I was there for him. And, and I went to another friend of mine who had lost his wife and he is now removed and is healed from it and he's growing. So I had talked to my wife and she said something and then I talked to him and the guy said the same thing, the other friend. And my wife says, Joe, you know, it's important that you be there for him now. He says, but what's going to be more important that you're there for him afterwards, after all the people have gone. And when I went to my other friend who I was getting advice from, who had already gone through this himself by losing his wife. And I asked him, I said, how can I best support my friend here? And he says, Joe, and he said what my wife said. He says, Joe, that these people were so helpful and they were so, they rallied around me. He said, but Joe, I started getting resentful. I said, what do you mean resentful? He said, Joe, after the funeral, after everything was done, gone, he said, everybody went back about their own lives, with their own lives. And he said, but Joe, I still didn't have my wife with me. And the call stopped, the text stopped, you know, that he, so he told me to be there for him after the funeral. And so, yes, you do talk about things we can do, but I want you to talk about that scenario because I don't think a lot of people do address that. So what would you say and what advice would you give us after everybody is now has helped and they followed your guidelines and did and say, OK, we did that. We were there for Sarah. Now life goes back to normal. What is the long term care we can provide for our neighbor? 
Well, I like to, I say keep remembering, and and it's um, addressed in the be present chapter, and that's sort of like what exactly. So if someone needs a, like a hook to hang it on in their mind, what we need to remember is that we need to be present long after that. In you know the initial hardship, right? And so you're spot on. This is number one, huge, huge, huge way that people, they just forget and they move on. And then it becomes super lonely and the depression starts and there's no, no more action items to do as we're grieving or taking care of plans and we're just sitting there alone. And so one, like some practical ways that guys could go about the remembering is set a reminder in your phone on the first day of a month and just put your friend's name in and, and have it pop up on your phone on the first or the second or third or whatever day you want. And, you know, just shoot them a text or, you know, regularly plan once a month to go out and offer. And if they don't want to go for the first six months, don't stop offering. I, I rode in a car once at a speaking engagement with a gentleman who lost his wife. And he specifically said to me, I had some friends that invited and invited and invited and invited and invited and invited. And I said, no, 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 no. Like almost a year. And he said, but they didn't stop. And when I finally said yes, I went back to church and I started to finally heal. And then another friend was dinner, you know, so like we can't give up, but we don't want to beat them over the head or, or berate them. We need to give them their time, but we need to keep that open, warm, well, just like we, like the fragrance of Christ, right? Just keep it open, keep the door open, keep it loving and kind and gentle and understanding. Hey dude, if you're up for dinner this month, I'd love to take you. I'm free this week or that week. You know, let me know if it works. Sarah, thank you. I mean, this is wonderful, wonderful, wonderful. Um, and I think this is going to bless a lot of men out there who are listening to this. Um, we have, you know, we, we've done over 200 and something episodes and there are these sh certain shows that we do that I call them archivable. <laughs> it's when you, you always go back and you refer to them or we refer them to other people. And this is definitely going to be uh, one of those shows. I don't know what episode is going to come out as, but it's going to come out in that they're going to refer people to listening to this, um, especially hopefully get your book. But this is, I mean, this just what you share with us in this this hour has been fantastic for me. And guys, that's the end of our show. Um, but don't you worry. Um, we're going to bring other guests on in the upcoming weeks. And um, they're going to hopefully bless you like Sarah did. And Sarah, I just want to thank you for joining us today, for being so gracious with your time and for writing such a wonderful book. Thank you for joining us. Oh, you, well, you really blessed me. I'm so grateful for your encouragement. And writing is a lonely process. So <laughs> yeah. I, I, I <laughs> yeah. the world and that it's being used. And that's really, again, just to God be the glory. We want people to love others better. And hopefully this book will help people do it. Well, you know, that's one of the commandments in the top two about loving our neighbors as we do ourselves. You know, but Sarah, we mentioned the book so many times. I've talked about it and we've gone through it. If our listeners wanted to find out more about you or how to get a copy of your book, what's the best way to reach out to you? So they can, um, I mean, the book's on Amazon. It's alongside. You can just Google that. Um, or alongsidebook.com. And that also is kind of linked through my website. And so, yeah, it's it's all the places. It's in bookstores and christianbooks.com all those places all right that book again is alongside and you can go to alongsidebook.com or find it on amazon and, and what we'll do sarah we'll put that in the show notes as well so they'll have a link to it right there from their phone or from their desktop and um guys if you like today's show please do us a favor because i mean, this was wonderful for me i enjoyed it this is so important take about 30 seconds to go over to itunes and rate the program for us it's the best way to help us get this program in the hands, ears, and hearts of men just like you. Guys, because of your faithful listening, you've made um, Real Men Connect Now the number one podcast for Christian men on iTunes. So I thank you for that. So please don't keep us a secret. Keep on sharing us with your friends. So until next time, I'm Joe Martin, your man builder with realmenconnect.com, reminding you that we are males by birth, but we are men by choice. So each and every day, choose to be the man God called and created you to be because a male is a terrible, terrible thing to waste. So until next time, stay strong, stay blessed, and as always, Stay in his grip. Thank you for listening to the Real Men Connect podcast with Dr. Joe Martin. Real Men Connect isn't just a podcast. It's a mission, ministry, and movement to help good men become the great men God called and created us to be. And the best is yet to come. 
So if you enjoyed this episode, go ahead and leave us a review in iTunes. It really helps us to build the podcast and to reach, teach, and impact more men, all for the glory of God. And make sure you check out realmenconnect.com to get our free tools and resources to help you go from good man to great man God's way. Again, that's realmenconnect.com. Thank you for listening. We'll see you in the next episode. Real Men Connect is a listener-supported podcast, and we're now the number one radio podcast on iTunes for Christian men. If this podcast has blessed you in any way and you'd like to help us continue to bless and transform the lives of even more husbands, fathers, sons, and leaders, please prayerfully consider supporting this ministry. Just go to realmenconnect.com and click on the donate button. And may God bless your faithful giving.